Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Uh, tonight, I want to look at the end of Daniel chapter 9. Um, at the end of Dan- Daniel chapter 9, I kind of rushed through it last week, and who knows, I might have to rush through it tonight. But, you know, because that is probably one of the most debated passages within Scripture. What does it mean? And, and just pondering on this particular passage, it made me think of something. I, I was just kind of thinking and wondering and kind of asking God, okay, you know, you, ha- you have different groups of people who view these verses differently, yet, you know, they're, they're saved, they believe in the most, most orthodox beliefs, you know, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement of Christ, uh, resurrection. They even believe that Scripture is infallible and inerrant. And yet, you have all these different views of, of what that means. I mean, we, we all hold the same gospel messages. We, behold, we, we know what the gospel is, and yet... You know, people who have these primary beliefs, they hold differing views on what this particular passage means. You know, they hold differing views of what we might call secondary uh, issues, issues that don't have a gospel uh, impact. And so I'm like, why, why is that? We're, 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 we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the same scripture, but, you know, you... You just have different people looking at things differently. I mean, it's, it's not just in the area of what does Daniel 9 mean. I mean, you, you got your Reformed, you got your Arminians, you got those in the middle. You got amillennials, premillennials, postmillennial, here millennial, there millennial, everywhere's a millennial um, people. And, and, you know, you, you have these filters that you look at things. And even, you know, your end times filter will filter how you interpret some some scripture so why all the the differences and you know the the answer that i kind of came up with i'm not saying it's scriptural it's just kind of what i came up with is that god allows these different interpretations so that it pushes us to go further into scripture go deeper into scripture for ourselves and go on this journey of digging deep i mean it, it it don't just take things on the surface. Go further. Go deeper. Seek it out for yourself. I always appreciate the Bereans who looked at Scripture. They didn't just take what Paul said at face value. They looked in the Scripture to see if the things that he was saying was true. And I always encourage that of you. Don't take, you know, don't, I mean, I'm trying to preach truth i'm trying to teach truth you know i'm not you know going out there trying to say something wrong but but still even what i say take it and then take it to scripture and to see if what the things that i'm saying are true and find for yourself look for yourself yes you know your your pastor and then you'll hear pastors on the radio and tv they'll give you okay this is my view of daniel 9 and that's my view of Daniel 7 or whatever. Well, okay, take it, but then take it to Scripture. Within the context, is that what it's saying? God, it, this Christianity thing, 
it's a, it's a journey, right? I mean, we, we don't get everything all at once. Like, is there anyone here who understands every single verse of Scripture and is able to, to exegete it perfectly? If so, I mean, I'll come down and you come up here because even I'm still on that journey. Uh, it's a journey. It's study. It's, it's work. And, and God wants that. God is encouraging that. So that's why there's all these different interpretations out there. And that's what, I mean, it is. That's what, it's about in, interpretations. Uh, people are interpreting these things. And hopefully they're doing it within context. Yes, the, the Word of God is inspired. It is infallible. But sometimes even the redeemed mind can close itself to the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I come into Scripture with certain filters, certain presuppositions. And, you know, and, and sometimes I look at, at a passage and it goes through my filter and I say, well, this is what it means. But then it's like, okay, well, let, let's dig deeper. Let's look at the context. Let's look at the literary context, the historical context. And it's like, okay, well, okay, maybe it doesn't mean what I thought it did. If I actually would just take time to look at it, and so God is forcing us to rely on Him and to seek Him and, and to seek out the truth from the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And it's a journey, and it's a journey that will continue, and we won't come to the end of that journey until we come to the end of the journey of, uh, of our life. And so our lives are continually seeking the truths of Scripture, and then applying them to our lives. And so, you know what? Until Christ returns, we're probably going to have various interpretations of the end of Daniel 9. And that's okay. I want to share with you what some of the various interpretations are, and then let you study, and study hard, and, you know, get into the Word, and and see if what anything that I'm saying is lining up to what's there. Now we know that Jesus is coming back someday, bodily, visibly, physically. He is coming back. The sooner the better. Um, but um, you know, until then, we will have our disagreements about when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen, and you know, it's going to be a little bumpy until then. But once Jesus returns, and we'll be like, oh, okay, that's, that's great, and we're not going to argue anymore about, about these things or debate about these things. We'll just be glad he came back and glad that that's over with and, and that we're in the eternal state. So I want to consider the verses at the end of Daniel chapter 9. I want, to, you know, what does it say? What might it mean? How's it been interpreted over time? And then let you study. And, and just glorify God that, that uh, you know what? He, he works amongst humanity. And he does a great work in this world. So it's verses 24 through 27, some quick verses. Uh, and yet these verses have a lot of impact. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's, uh, Gabriel has come to, to give answer to Daniel's prayer. And uh, God, God sent Gabriel to share with Daniel what's going to happen, and this is what he says. 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel had been praying about Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of captivity. Those 70 years were about up. He prayed. He was concerned. Well, okay, the 70 years are about up. What now? What happens next? And so God sent Gabriel to give the answer. And, and Gabriel's answer from God is that 70 weeks are decreed for the people and the holy city. Literally, it says 70 sevens have been decreed for what happens to the Jews, what happens to Jerusalem. And we know that, uh, you know, that term sevens, that term weeks, in this context refers to years. So 70 weeks of years, that's 490 years are decreed for Israel for something to happen, for God to do something amazing for the people of Israel. It says in verse 24 that at the end of the 490 years, transgression would be finished, or the word might more literally be restrained. It, you know, that doesn't mean that transgression is going to cease to exist at this time, just somehow it would be restrained. He says that there would be an end to sin. Literally, it says that sin would be sealed up. And again, that's referring to some sort of restraint. He says that there would be an, an atonement for iniquity. God's wrath would be appeased for sin and iniquity. Somehow, and this is how sin would be sealed up. He says that everlasting righteousness would be brought, and eternal righteousness would be made a reality where God's righteousness would prevail. He says that vision and prophecy would be sealed. It's the same word that talks about the end to sin. So vision and prophecy would be sealed like a king uses his ring to seal a document to say that it's authentic. So the visions and prophecies of the Old Testament are going to be authenticated through what happens, but it also could mean that those visions and prophecies are brought to their eventual close. And then it finally says that it's a time to anoint a most holy place, a place of everlasting holiness. So that whatever is going to happen is going to bring a righteousness, a holiness, an end to sin in some way, shape, or form. And, and uh, it, sin would be sealed up, sin would be restrained in some way, shape, or form. So it, you know, it, it's interesting. And those 490 years don't necessarily have to do with politics of the people, per se, like they, they're expecting. 
Instead, after these 490 years, something spiritually amazing would come about. Something unheard of before would come about. Of course, you know, what you think that is depends on the filter that you use. And so there's two views that I'll talk about tonight. The uh, premillennial dispensationalism, that's, that's a lot of big words there, but what that means, they are the ones that believe like the Left Behind series, when you think of that, um, that kind of thinking. And then there's the amillennials. Well, the premillennials, what they say is that this verse has to do with the Jews right before or uh, right at uh, Christ's second coming. The seven-year period of the 70th week is going to usher in Christ's millennial kingdom where the Jews will finally believe in Jesus and have their sin atoned for, and they are made righteous. On the other hand, the amillennialists, boy, those are hard words to say. Amillennialists believe that what is being talked about there is Christ's first coming. It is through Christ's death and resurrection that sin and transgression is restrained. It's through Christ's death and resurrection that sin is securely locked up through his atoning work. And so through Christ, God's kingdom has come, and therefore righteousness has penetrated this sinful world. It's through Christ that visions and prophecies of the Old Testament will have their fulfillment. And through Christ, believers in the church are made holy, and they are made a holy temple. The church is the new holy of holies. And so either of you knows it has to do with Christ and his work in some way, shape, or form, just when, which one. Um, but both of you believe that verse 24 is a summary verse. This is what's going to happen. This is what God is going to bring about. And it's through Jesus Christ. But now verse 25 gets a little bit more specific about what is going to happen in that 490-year period of Israel's history. And so that, this verse focuses in on the first 483 years. 69 weeks, 69 sevens. There would be a decree that would go forth regarding the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and that starts the clock. So the clock starts then. The 69 years, and, or 69 uh, weeks, I mean, or sevens. And it says that at the end of those 69 weeks, 483 years, would come, be coming an anointed one, a prince. Now the word anointed there, it's the word that is related to Messiah. So the decree to rebuild Jerusalem would come, and then 483 years later, there would come an anointed one, a Messiah. You know, they, they still didn't get the full concept of what Messiah meant. But a Messiah would be coming. Well, what happens in the meantime during those 483 years? Well, Jerusalem is built. Probably that's why it's split between 7 and 62 weeks. After 7 weeks, 49 years, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And then the next 62 sevens, more things would be completed in the city. But they would go through some troublesome times. And if you know the history of the Jews, they definitely went through some troublesome times during that period. Now, all the views of, uh, of this particular passage, they, they know that somehow that 483 years leads to Christ. 
but they, they don't know exactly, they, they differ on where it leads. In, in verse 25, where it talks of a decree to restore, the word also could mean return. So it could mean Cyrus's decree to rebuild Jerusalem and allow the Jews to go. It could be one of the decrees that were made during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. So premillennial dispensationalists, they believe that it refers to Artaxerxes' second decree that came out in about 445 B.C., which would then lead to Christ's triumphal entry. Amillennialists believe that the 483-year period starts from Artaxerxes' first decree somewhere around 458 B.C., and it actually leads to Christ's baptism. I mean, all roads lead to Christ. All views believe it gets there. It's just, well, you know, the, the final destination's a little bit different between the two. But it all leads to Christ. Christ was the plan for Israel. And Christ was the plan for the entire world. God was going to bring Israel their Savior. But he was not going to just be a Savior for Israel. He would save, be a Savior for the entire world. So 483 years leads to Christ. That's where there's kind of this theological fork in the road. And again, this is not a salvation issue. This is not a gospel issue. Uh, you know, whichever way you view, it, as long as you believe Jesus is returning visibly, physically, and, and bodily, you know, you're all in the same camp in some way, shape, or form. And, 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 you know, something else to consider is as long as your end-time view does not cause you to just sit around and do nothing, just kind of sit around and wait. Oh, I'm just going to sit here and wait for Christ. He's, he's coming back, you know, he's staring up in the clouds. I'm just going to sit here and do nothing while I'm waiting on Christ to return because, you know, that's what somehow my end-time view, end view goes that way. You know, really, what your end-time view ought to do is encourage you that, you know what, this wicked world isn't, isn't your final destination if you're in Christ. You, you have something better in store. This world is not your home. And it should encourage you to know that the evils of this world will not last forever. And so your end-time view, whatever it might be, ought to cause you and whatever your view of this passage is ought to cause you to run to Christ for comfort. And it ought to cause us to run out into this world with the gospel. Because Christ is going to come or people are going to die. You know, that's really the only two options. Either they're going to die or Christ is going to come. Either way, they need to be prepared to meet him. And so they need the gospel. I mean, we, we don't think of it this way, and I, and I got to be careful how I word this, but, you know, if we just kind of sit back and think, oh, well, you know, at least I'm saved, and, you know, everybody else is kind of on their own, yeah, that, that's not really a reflection of Christ's heart there. Christ said that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what are we, are we just going to sit back and expect to be served, or are we going to go out and serve by sharing 
the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And, and so whatever our end time view is and whatever our view is of Daniel 9 and everything that, that's going on here, you know, it ought to cause a change in us in some way, shape, or form. It ought to cause something to be stirred within us. That being said, well, verses 26 and 27, that's, you know, kind of where the big debate comes. These are summaries of what happens after the 483 years. And, you know, the debate is, okay, is this the seventh week, or 70th week, the 70th seven, the last seven years? Are these things happening during, after that 70th week? When, when are these things happening? Well, you know, they both talk a little bit in, in generalities of what happens after the first 483 years. Verse 26 is a little bit more of a summary. Verse 27 maybe speaks a little bit more specifically about what happens in that 70th week, that 70th seven. So let's take a quick look at that. Verse 26 begins by saying that an anointed one, again, the same word, the Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And it's, it, you know, that, it's interesting, that word there that means cut off, it can also mean to make a covenant because the Old Testament used the term to cut a covenant. And, and so is it talking about the Messiah being cut off? Is it talking about the Messiah cutting a covenant? Maybe it's both, you know. Uh, both views, you know, uh, whether you're pre-mill or a-mill or, or whatever, I mean, both views see the crucifixion in this some way, shape, or form. And it's through Christ's death that God made his new covenant with those who believe. I mean, Christ was cut off. And by his being cut off, God made a covenant with humanity. But then it says he would have nothing is what most of the interpretations uh, say. This might be an indication that his disciples would abandon him. It might also be an indication that his death, at, you know, at, at the time and in the eyes of worldly humans, that it would seem to accomplish nothing. I mean, here's this guy who we think is the Messiah, and he dies on, on the cross. He dies like a criminal. So from the view of humanity, he died for nothing, but we know different. We know that he died in order to save humanity. Then the end of verse 26 talks about a prince who will destroy the city. And the sanctuary, dispensationalists, will say that this refers to the end times when the Antichrist will make war with the Israelites and enter the city and do all sorts of unspeakable things to the temple and, you know, devastate the city. Amillennialists believe that this refers to the destruction of the city and temple in A.D. 70 when the Romans came. And really, you know, if you think about what it said earlier in verses 24 and 25, it said an anointed one, a prince, would come. Well, here again, an anointed one, a prince. Now, amillennialists will say that the anointed one is Christ, the prince is the Antichrist. But, well, that, the premillennials will say that. See, I, I'm getting all that mixed up too. But the amillennialists will say, well, actually, the Romans were Jesus' tool of judgment against uh, the Israelites who did not believe. So they still see the anointed one and prince being Christ. Well, verse 27 speaks about a covenant that is made. Dispensationalists believe that the verse refers to the Antichrist 
making a seven-year covenant with Israel. And he will break the covenant halfway and, through the covenant, and he'll come into Jerusalem, desecrate the rebuilt temple with pagan rituals and set himself up as God and, um, and, and things like that. And, you know, that's when the great tribulation will begin. On the other hand, the Amillennials see verse 27 as a parallel to verse 26. The covenant referred to is the new covenant made through Christ, and it talks about, you know, halfway through the 70th week, something happening. Well, three and a half years in, into the 70th week, Christ had a three and a half year ministry from his baptism to his, his crucifixion and resurrection. And, and so, you know, it talks about sacrifices will cease. Well, Christ's death made the sacrificial system obsolete and, and the worship at the temple unnecessary. And so the temple would be desolated in A.D. 70, putting an end to the sacrificial system. So that's the amillennialist belief. Again, you know, there's a lot of differences. Do some studying. Um, although there's disagreements about what these verses specifically lead to, you know, I think that whatever your view is, these verses have something to say about God. God is moving history toward a goal. God is moving history toward an, in, an intended purpose. I mean, things just aren't happening, and God's just kind of up in heaven looking down, going, oh, brother, when are these people going to get their act together? Well, until they do something about it, I can't do something about it. No. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is moving history towards something. But the road to get to wherever God is leading history, it's not an easy road. It is a road filled with trials and, and, and tribulations. And just because things look chaotic in this world right now and life seems so chaotic right now, doesn't mean that God has lost control. And yes, the, the road, it has twists and it has turns and there's forks in the road and, you know, of, of this journey. Just because we, we go through that doesn't mean God loves us any less or he just doesn't love us at all or, or he doesn't see us or, or he doesn't care because God in his scripture promises that he will be with us. I mean, the most famous psalm that there is, Psalm 23, even when I'm going through I mean, you know, the valley of the shadow of death is how it's normally translated. Could be the shadow of, of, or the valley of shadows. I mean, darkness. It's a valley of darkness. Even though I go through a valley of darkness, what does David say? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And, and so... God doesn't say, well, you know what, I'm going to just keep you from, from going through valleys. I mean, yeah, it would be pretty cool if everything in our Christian life was a mountaintop experience. That'd be awesome. Hey, I'm all for it. I, I vote for mountaintop experience anytime, any day of the week. That's not the reality of it, because this is a journey. It's a journey. And, and, and it's leading somewhere. And wherever it might be leading for us individually, I mean, it's all headed in really in one direction. And, and God is the one 
behind the scenes moving it to wherever it, it, it is. Now, you know, we might not like, okay, so, you know, using the image of I'm on a journey, I'm traveling down a road. I might not like that spot in the road where I'm at right now. But you know what? I, I'm still moving down the road. And so down the road, there might be something better, there might be something worse. But you know what? God is still with me. Whatever is down that road, and I'm moving toward a goal, I'm moving toward a purpose. I might have no idea what it is, but I'm moving somewhere. But you know what? If, if we just concentrate in this one area of road that we're on right now and think that that's it, that's all there is, is this one area of road, then, then we're, missing, we're missing out. And yeah, it, we, we'll have a hard time with, you know, it's difficulties. Okay, I'm in a road, part of a road that's very difficult. On this journey, there's a whole lot of potholes in this particular area of road in my life. Uh, on this journey. But we can't just brood over the pothole area. We look forward to, well, you know what? God is with me. Even in the potholes and whatever it is I'm, I'm in. In the valley, God is with me. And you know what? He's going to be with me down the road. And, and, and it's a journey. It is a journey. We can't just take a... It's a difference between a, a photo and a video, right? A photo... All right, here's one particular time. A video just keeps moving and moving and moving. Our lives are moving. God is moving us along. He's in control. If he can move and control the history of an entire nation, which really changed the history of the entire world, what can he do with your life? If, if he can control the entire world, is somehow your life out of his jurisdiction or something? I don't know if that's the right word. But, you know, it, is your life somehow, well, yeah, but I'm over here and God's controlling the world over here. You're part of the world. And God's got you. I mean, that we, we should be encouraged that, I mean, this is, we might not all agree on the interpretation, but it's pretty specific. Hey, there's 490 years that God has decreed for your nation. And this is what's going to happen in very, very short form. He's going to bring a Savior into the world. God controlled history to bring Jesus God controls your life to use you for whatever purposes he might have. And so we're just thankful for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening. 
and God bless.